cetera. So thanks for joining us in doing battle against our common enemy who foolishly thinks that he's going to use this to divide us. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> Through a series of studies in the 1960s and 70s, Ezra, or, uh, Henri Teichfeld made some groundbreaking discoveries regarding group identity. Ezra Klein writes about these experiments in his book, Why We're Polarized. You can find the actual studies online. I'm only going to be able to summarize the findings here, but... <clears throat> When people are assigned to groups, even to random groups, and even when the people don't know each other at all, even when they'll never see each other again, even when the reasoning for the group assignments isn't meaningful in any way, people show a strong tendency to make choices that advantage their in-group, the group that they're a part of, over uh, and, and to disadvantage their out-groups, the groups that they're not a part of. Right? And, and Teichfeld found it goes even further than that, actually. In a series of studies, he found that <clears throat> when given two choices, okay, so choice A is that everybody in the study gets more money than they would have otherwise, but members of my in-group don't get much more than members of the out-group. Okay, that's choice A. So everybody gets more money overall, but I don't get much more than the people in the out-group got. That's choice A. Or choice B, which is that I get less money and my in-group gets less money, but we get a lot more than the out-group got. What do people choose? B, actually, the second one. In other words, human beings would rather we receive less as long as we can be sure that we're getting a lot more than members of other groups are getting. That's what he found. Fascinating, right? The desire to create or maintain an advantage for our in-groups over our out-groups, it seems to be baked into our sinful human nature. And one of the primary ways in which we've organized ourselves into in-groups and out-groups has been on the basis of ethnicity. And by that we mean social groups that have common national and cultural traditions. So the Hutu versus the Tutsi in Rwanda, mid-90s. Koreans versus Japanese, Italian-Americans versus Irish-Americans, Serbs versus Albanians, Jews versus Arabs. In our passage today, this kind of ethnic rivalry is going to play a factor in the escalation of a conflict. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4. This is a second to last installment of our Jesus versus Idol series in which we've seen Jesus confronting good things that we tend to worship as though they were ultimate things. So a little background on this story. As you're turning there in the chapter or two leading up to this story, Luke has been drawing parallels between Jesus and Adam. Adam, the first human. For example, after Luke tells the story of Jesus' baptism when God uh, <coughs> calls Jesus his son, Luke then traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, whom Luke calls the first son of God. Then Jesus gets tempted in the wilderness, yet overcomes temptation in the way that the first Adam didn't. But now, as we see Jesus, the new Adam, return to his hometown, chapter 4, verse 16, we still don't quite know what are the priorities of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. As we pick up the story, it's the Sabbath day. 
Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. That's the small village where he was raised after being born in Bethlehem and then after spending a little while as a refugee in Egypt. Now, as a 30-year-old, he's in his hometown, and he's about to preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath in front of the hometown crowd. It's interesting. The other gospel accounts of the story actually place it later in their narratives. Those gospels may be ordering the story chronologically closer to the sequence of events in which it actually happened, but when Luke gives his account of the life of Jesus, he puts this story right at the front, right at the beginning, probably because this is a tone-setting event. This is one that will characterize Jesus' whole ministry from here forward. So here's how it breaks down. There are two cycles, we might call them, in this passage. In each of the two cycles, we see Jesus speaking and then the people of Nazareth responding. So Jesus preaches, they respond. We'll see cycle one and then cycle two. The first speech-response cycle uh, deals with what Jesus will do, what Jesus will do. Before we read that, just a little setup. Today, <clears throat> if you were to ask 10 people what Jesus came to do, you might get 10 different answers to that question. One person might say Jesus came to teach morality. Another might say Jesus came to help the poor and needy. Another might say Jesus came to inspire people to live better lives. Another might say Jesus came to heal the sick. I've heard others say that Jesus came to dismantle unjust systems. Now, there are certain verses that you could select from the Gospels and pull them out to support just about any of those assertions. And let's be honest, isn't it true that most of us tend to gravitate toward the sorts of verses about Jesus that emphasize our own priorities, right? that match our own pre-existing ideas about the sort of Jesus that we would like to follow? So the moral rule follower, for example, might gravitate toward Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The person who loves grace might gravitate toward Jesus' rescuing the woman caught in adultery. The zealous religious purist might gravitate toward Jesus' driving the money changers out of the temple. For progressive Christians, including those sometimes called liberation theologians, the passage we're about to read ranks highly among their favorite passages to quote. They point out, when Jesus has a chance to clarify his mission, he chooses a passage from the Old Testament that puts on display God's heart for the marginalized. Therefore, the argument goes, the definitive answer to the question of what Jesus came to do is something like this. He came to break the chains of injustice for the poor, the prisoner, and the oppressed. Evaluate that claim with me as we read these verses. Verses 16 to 22 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I think there are opposite dangers that we need to be aware of in this conversation. On the one hand, the progressive Christian or uh, liberation theologian does alert us to a very real danger raised by this passage. Namely, the danger over here that, that a church like ours would neglect those on the margins. What do I mean by the margins? We see four examples in the scripture passage that Jesus read. The poor, those in prison, the disabled, the oppressed. And let's just speak candidly. Up here on the North Shore, where we live, the presence of folks on the margins can be considered sort of unseemly, right? So there's incentive for some of our families, some of our churches to craft an existence in which those on the margins, they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. Surely there's somebody else somewhere else who's called to minister to them. When you read through scripture, including the passage in Isaiah 61 that Jesus reads here, <clears throat> it's impossible to escape the reality that those on the margins are never out of God's sight. They are never out of God's mind. In fact, our God seems to be particularly attentive to the poor, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed. See Exodus 22, Psalm 146, Zechariah 7. So if we're called to be imitators of our God, and if his heart is particularly attuned to the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, we have a responsibility to tune our hearts and therefore our actions in the same direction. And many of you have. <clears throat> God has blessed you with means. And instead of buying the absolute biggest house you can and the nicest cars and upgrading the irons in your golf bag, you've made your table a place where the least of these are fed. You've made your homes a place where people on the margins find a pillow under their head and a family to support them. You are fighting as we all must fight against the ever-present North Shore danger that we would neglect those on the margins. However, there's another danger that this passage alerts us to, <clears throat> namely, the danger that we'd read this as if social and political advocacy was the reason that Jesus came. That's another danger, that we'd treat this as if social and political advocacy was the reason that Jesus came. Look again. Out of the four verbs that uh, Jesus reads here in the scripture that he reads, do you notice that three of the four are verbs of proclamation? Take a look again. The Spirit has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, sure, Jesus fed the poor. He advocated for the marginalized. But if you read through the Gospels and look at how he spent his time, you'll notice that much more than overturning systems and even more than healing the sick, he came to preach a message. Remember Mark 1 when there's still sick people in Capernaum waiting to be healed? But Jesus was like, I have to leave. I have to go to the other towns of Galilee to preach because preaching is why I came. Mark chapter 1. Friends, even while we engage in important social and political advocacy for all sorts of marginalized groups, from the unborn to ethnic minorities to refugees, those with disabilities, we must not 
lose our burden for lost people to hear, right? To hear the only good news that can liberate them from the most ultimate sort of oppression, namely the oppression of sin and death. Let's not recreate Jesus in the image of a mere social and political advocate, activist. He came first and foremost with a message about what he was going to supernaturally do to set at liberty those oppressed by sin. And because he's preaching here about the liberation that he himself is going to accomplish, he can preach in a way that none of these Nazareans have ever heard somebody preach before. I mean, they've heard lots of these mini-sermons over the years. Every Sabbath day, an adult male from the community would stand up and share a few words based on one of the readings. On this particular Sabbath, Jesus is up. It's his turn. They know him. He was raised among them. Verse 23 makes it sound like they've heard about what he's been doing in some of the other towns. So they're intently listening to how he's going to start his sermon in verse 20. It would be like uh, if our friend Tim Fensler in the back went off to college as he's going off to college next year. And then over the next few years, we heard some stories about God using him out in Virginia. And then he came back in a few years to visit us. And, and we sent him up here to the pulpit to preach. We'd be all ears, wouldn't we? What does he have to say to us? But then what if Tim, our Tim, who's, I don't know, I can't remember how long you guys have been here. Maybe some of you changed his diapers at some point, right? What if our Tim got up and read a biblical passage and then he kicked off his sermon intro like this, verse 21. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus started his sermon that way in Nazareth, it didn't seem less crazy than that. This was Jesus that they knew. Every sermon these people had ever heard up to this point had basically boiled down to someone getting up and saying, let me show you the point of this passage. Now here comes Jesus. I am the point of this passage. So they threw him out immediately for blasphemy. No. Surely they laughed him out of the synagogue, though. No. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now, these people are going to get angry in a minute. We'll see that. But it's really important that we notice in verse 22, they aren't angry yet. Jesus read what was considered by many to be a messianic passage, a passage about Messiah, and said, this is about me. And all spoke well of him. Now, no doubt they've got questions. First and foremost, isn't this Joseph's son? Verse 22. That's not a question born of excitement, but rather of skepticism. We find out in the other Gospels that record this story. Like, hey, impressive speaking skills by Jesus. Love the words he said, but he's still just Joseph's son. Isn't he getting a little big for his britches? But despite the reactions to Jesus' sermon being a bit mixed, the fact remains that even after his extremely bold claim about what he came to do, the people are speaking well, both of him and of his words. So at the end of this first cycle of our text in which Jesus reveals what he came to do, let's ask ourselves, does Jesus' stated mission match what we'd like his mission to be? Does Jesus' stated mission match what we'd like his mission to be? We all want to claim Jesus for our pet cause, right? But in the end, we find he's not quite what any of us would like him to be, <laughs> at least not in our sinful natures. I mean, it feels great when he affirms some of our deeply felt inclinations, but it's painful, isn't it, when he challenges our idols? 
And in this framing moment of his ministry, he indicates to those in his hometown that he's going to spend his earth, his days on earth, prioritizing telling the good news, proclaiming it, particularly to the poor, to the needy, to the oppressed. Now, we're going to have a better idea what he means after the remaining verses, whether he has in mind the materially poor, the socially oppressed, or maybe, as some suggest, the spiritually poor and those oppressed by sin. But the strongest emphasis in Jesus' ministry is not going to be on the immediate rectifying of earthly injustice, but rather on proclamation. That's what we've seen in this first cycle here. Now, I don't know. I I can imagine, though, that if I was one of Jesus' disciples— or one of the family members who were maybe present for this sermon, then after verse 22, I might be thinking something like this. Like, Jesus, you're in a decent spot here with these folks. I mean, they're not quite ready to crown you Messiah and worship you yet, but the fact that they're speaking well of you, that they're liking your gracious words, we can build on that, Jesus. Right? So, hey, let, let's conclude with some pleasantries, Jesus. Right? Call it a day. Over time, you might be on your way to fully winning these people over. Jesus has different ideas about where he wants to go with the conclusion to this sermon. Let's take a look at it in the second cycle here. Second cycle about who will receive him, verses 22 to 30. Uh, Before we read it, again, a setup. I wonder, in this year of COVID, have you had to apologize at some point for reacting disproportionately to something that didn't actually warrant such a strong reaction? I know I have. There's something about staring at Zoom screens and being cooped up in your house all day with the same people that brought out the worst in many of us, didn't it? That dynamic, I think, had to have contributed to the phenomenon last summer of almost weekly viral videos that we were seeing coming out of folks melting down in retail stores about mask policies and other things, launching items out of their carts onto the floor one by one while screaming at employees. I don't know how many of those people ask themselves this question afterwards, but I think we probably all should. Why do we sometimes lose our minds and react unlovingly in response to something that shouldn't have made us so angry? I'm going to propose an answer. Now, I don't want to claim that this is always the answer to that question. It may not be, but many thoughtful pastors and theologians over the years have pointed out that at those moments when we really lose it and blow up, like, like uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about just getting a little annoyed, like when we really go off the handle, it's almost always because in that moment, something is interfering with an idol that we intended to worship. When we get angry, it tends to be because I was just trying to worship my idol and you decided to get in my way, for example. I was just getting ready to bask in the glow of public admiration that I'm such a good dad. Maybe that's my idol, right? And my son's going to pick this moment in front of everybody to pull his brother's pants down? Or I was just enjoying a sense of control out here on the highway with my hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel. That's my idol, that control. And this clown in front of me is going to cut me off in traffic? Or... I was just starting to feel a sense of accomplishment of what I've achieved in my career at such a young age. That's my idol. And now God's going to take my job away from me? When our hearts start to beat fast, 
when our teeth start to clench, when we find ourselves starting to run a little hot. Our bodies may be giving us warning signs that we've strayed into idol worship. In other words, our more extreme emotional responses may be the result of our most treasured idols being threatened. Let's consider that phenomenon as we read verses 23 to 30. And we see some anger develop. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And passing through their midst, he went away. <clears throat> Do you see that it's only when the people of Nazareth experience one of their deeply treasured idols being threatened that they get really mad? Remember, at the end of verse 22, we don't see anger. Nazarenes may have had questions about the legi legitimacy of Jesus' claims, but they're all speaking well of him at that point. Then just a few verses later, they can't roll up their sleeves fast enough to try to throw Jesus off a cliff. That's not a normal emotional swing. Right? You, can, you don't go from speaking well of someone to wanting to kill them in a matter of minutes because of a mere intellectual disagreement. This is heart level. Right? There's idol worship that's being interfered with here, but that's the question. Worship of what idol? Look at the two stories Jesus tells that, makes, that make the people of Nazareth so mad. Look at them again, 25 to 27. What do they both have in common? They're both Old Testament stories from the lives of Jewish heroes, Elijah and Elisha, in which ethnic insiders, Jewish folks in this case, were passed up in favor of ethnic outsiders, Gentiles. verses 25 and 26, Jesus is like, hey, did you ever notice that Elijah wasn't sent to any of the widows who needed help in Israel? There were a lot of them. But instead of being sent to Jewish widows in need, remember that God sent him to a Gentile widow in need. And then in verse 27, Jesus is like, hey, did you ever notice that God could have used Elisha to heal Jewish lepers of their skin diseases? But instead of being sent to Jewish lepers, God sent him to heal a Gentile leper? Common thread in those two stories, the ethnic insiders of the day were resistant to God, so God sent his prophets to bless ethnic outsiders instead. And the people of Nazareth know their biblical history well enough to pick up on the layers underneath what Jesus is saying. They know he's implying that it's possible that a Gentile widow and a Gentile general, Naaman, were more deserving than they are in Nazareth of being recipients of God's kingdom blessing. They know he's implying that just as God extended his blessing to the Gentiles because of Jewish rejection in the days of Elijah and Elisha, God may be planning to do the same in the days of Jesus. And it absolutely infuriates them to the point at which they become murderous. 
One of the idols being worshipped here then is the idol of their ethnic group, or more specifically, the idol of the place held by their ethnic group. It's Teichfeld's studies we referenced at the beginning of the sermon. It's age-old human nature. If my in-group has a special position, I don't want to lose that special status to some scrubby out-group who dress funny and eat strange foods and listen to odd music, right? I like the place my ethnic in-group holds. Remember Paul Tripp's diagnostic questions we've been looking at each week in this series? Let's apply them to ethnicity now. If I'm trying to figure out, has ethnicity, my ethnicity, the place of my ethnic group become an idol for me? I can ask myself these three questions. First, am I willing to sin to advantage my ethnic group? Am I willing to sin to advantage my ethnic group? Like, would I support someone evil if it meant my ethnic group would benefit? Would I commit violence to help my ethnic group gain equality? Would I ignore the plight of fellow believers of other ethnicities to enhance the status of those in my own ethnicity? Am I willing to sin to advantage my ethnic group? Second, am I willing to sin if I think my ethnic group is in danger of losing its position? Am I willing to sin if I think my ethnic group is in danger of losing its position? That's what this crowd in Nazareth falls into. Jesus effectively says, I'm the Messiah. No problem. We're not sure about that, but okay. By the way, I'm going to the Gentiles. Let's kill him. Why? Because if Messiah passes over the Jewish people in order to bless the Gentiles, then in what sense are we Jewish folks still God's special people? Jesus is threatening their ability to worship their idol of ethnic heritage, but ethnic heritage is what they put their trust in, so they become furious. Third, do I turn turn to my ethnic identity as a refuge and comfort? Instead of going to God. There's a world out here that's dying for you and me to do this. There's social media algorithms designed to get us to build our, eth- our identity around our ethnicity. And, in large measure, they're succeeding. They're riling up fear in white people about people of other ethnicities who are swarming in and making it harder for us to maintain what's familiar to us as white people. Right? And on the other side... They're succeeding in getting people of color to treat their ethnicities as their primary allegiance. The master category that governs their whole lives. Friends, whatever ethnic group you belong to, we must not give in to this idolatry. So, what's the place of your ethnic heritage in your heart? I should say this to be totally clear. There's absolutely nothing wrong with appreciating your ethnicity, right? I love being Irish American. I feel affinity for the accent when I hear it. I feel affinity for the culture. I feel affinity for the traditions. That's not equal to my affinity for other cultures and traditions. It's just not. But like any other good thing, wealth, happiness, family, ministry, it's possible that my ethnicity could become an idol, if I treasure my Irishness above my identity in Christ, that's a danger at this particular moment in 2021 for ethnic minority groups in America who are tempted to say, for example, black is king. Right? And it's also a danger at this particular moment for white Americans tempted to support efforts to make America white again. You say, listen, Let's not get off track. What does any of this ethnicity stuff have to do with the gospel? It actually has much to do with the gospel. 
Take a look at Galatians 3.8, for example. Here we see Paul writing to the church at Galatia. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel. So Scripture announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Oh, Abraham, we know him. We just studied him the last few months, right? So when did Scripture announce the gospel in advance to Abraham? Here's when. When it said in Genesis 12, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations will be blessed through you. You see that? According to the Apostle Paul, the gospel that was announced to Abraham 4,000 years ago was the good news that many nations, many ethne, were going to become beneficiaries of God's blessing. In other words, the multi-ethnic nature of the people God was purchasing for himself was baked into the plan right from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 12. And sure, our Jewish brothers and sisters, um, some of whom are here this morning, are God's people, God's chosen people. But chosen for what? They were and are chosen to be those through whom God would bring salvation to the rest of those he chose from among all nations. Culminating in this beautiful picture in Revelation 7 of every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping God around his throne. God has been working out this plan since Genesis 12. The people in Nazareth, they didn't like it when Jesus reminded them that the plan was still intact. Not everybody today likes that the plan is still intact. Right? For one thing, the fact that the people of God come from every ethnic group on earth means there's no one ethnic group who are the keepers of true Christianity. Sometimes that feels like a gut punch to some of us who are used to thinking of ourselves that way. Like in, in 1910, 80% of Christians lived in the global north. Now, 60% of Christians live in the global south. And those trends are only projected to accelerate in the coming decades based on birth rates, among other factors. So if you find yourself on a flight next week, sitting next to a black woman from sub-Saharan Africa, that woman is much more statistically likely to be a Bible-believing Christian than the white man sitting across the aisle from you just the way the world has worked out now, statistically speaking. And as allegiance to Christianity plummets in America, especially among white Americans, do you know what the two primary demographic factors are that are slowing America down from becoming as post-Christian as Europe is, for example? One, people of color in America aren't abandoning Christianity as rapidly as white Americans are. Right? Secondly, more than half of the immigrants coming into our country are Christians. In other words, God is answering the prayers of Americans, including white Americans, that he would not abandon our nation. And he's answering those prayers in part through people of color sustaining their commitment to the faith while so many, walk, so, so many white folks walk away. Praise God for that. But then, you know, it's odd to some of our immigrant brothers and sisters that the demographic group most statistically opposed to their presence here is not white atheists or white secularists, but rather white evangelicals. Now, listen, I, I mean, I guess I have to make clear that I'm not advocating for open borders, any particular immigration policy. That's not what I'm interested in doing at all. Uh, I'm just reminding us that ever since Genesis 12, God has been working out his plan 
to purchase for himself a multi-ethnic people for his own possession. And God is causing that plan to move steadily forward, even to this day, even if our immediate circles are showing signs of serious religious decline. He's doing it. So let's circle back to the question that Jesus is answering in this second cycle of our text. Who will receive Jesus? So if he came to preach this message, who's going to receive it? And in the first cycle, we had a preliminary answer to that question. The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. But we said we weren't sure yet whether that poor meant the materially poor or the spiritually poor. And were the captives and blind those who are physically imprisoned and blind? Or are the oppressed those suffering under unjust political systems? Or is this all talking about the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, spiritually speaking, right? I've, convi- I've become convinced that the latter is actually more accurate. That it's the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed in a spiritual sense, first and foremost. And here's why. In this second cycle, when Jesus brings up these two Old Testament examples of the kind of poor, blind, oppressed people who will receive his message, one of the two is a widow, the other is Naaman the Syrian. Someone who from a worldly perspective is super powerful, anything but poor. Yet to Jesus, Naaman the Syrian is the kind of poor person he speaks of because... The poverty Jesus is talking about is first and foremost a spiritual poverty, namely a willingness to acknowledge one's need. And Naaman had that, despite his riches and power. Now, to be sure, that sort of spiritual poverty that God honors is more often found in the materially poor than it is in the materially rich. It's easier to acknowledge need when you don't know when your next meal's, where your next meal is coming from. But whether we are materially rich or poor today, What's important is to make sure that we're spiritually poor. In other words, that we know that we don't possess anything that endears us to God. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling, as the old hymn says, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. So, if those are the kind of people Jesus believes will receive him, the spiritually poor, those who know they're blind, those begging to be released from captivity to sin, those oppressed by the devil, And if the materially poor, blind, captive, and oppressed have an easier time being cognizant of their great need, then let's ask, would we be ready? Would we be ready, North Suburban Church, if God wanted to start a revival in our midst, but he wanted to start it by stirring up the hearts of a whole bunch of outsiders who are very much on the margins of society on the North Shore, but who know their need for God? Would we be ready for that? Or would it not fit what we were looking for? Our big idea today is this. May our allegiance to our ethnic in-groups not cause us to miss the blessings offered by our Messiah. In Nazareth, they missed out because of this. May that not be us. May our allegiance to our ethnic in-groups, as legitimate as that may be, not cause us to miss the blessings offered by our Messiah. In the chapters that follow our text that we read today, Jesus will be rejected like this again and again. But when rejected, he indicates that he won't be killed until his time has come. But then one day, his time does come. And he goes to the cross. Would you look to the cross with me as we reflect on that for a moment? No angry mob takes Jesus' life at that cross. Rather, he lays it down voluntarily. 
the release of captives that Jesus had previously announced in Nazareth, he now accomplishes there at that cross. He does so by laying down his liberty to give us liberty. The one who didn't have any sin becomes sin for us so that our sin can be washed away. The record of guilt that each of us is carrying around gets peeled off of us and nailed up to that cross where it's done away with once and for all. As you see in there, as you hear that news, how will you respond? Will we be like the Nazareans whose idols got in the way of their receiving their Savior? Or will we come to him on his terms to accept the blessings of salvation that are ours in him? You know, there's great risk with either choice. Rejecting this message means you get to keep your idols, but you risk missing out on the relationship that you were made for. Accepting this message means you risk your life getting turned upside down with new priorities and the painful destruction of old idols, including that idol of ethnicity. But you may find yourself in what verse 19 calls the year of the Lord's favor. word to those who have accepted Christ. There's nothing more natural than favoring our ethnic in-groups over out-groups. That's Kaiserfeld's studies decades ago, but that's the problem. Sin is natural to us. So let's be on guard. If we put our ethnicities on our throne without realizing it, we could very well miss the blessing offered by our Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we want to treasure you first and foremost. We want to do so because we're grateful uh, that you went to the cross. Your son went to the cross on our behalf, died in our place. We want to live for you as a result. Lord, we've become aware in this series of idols that we didn't know we had. Uh, In some cases, we knew we had an idol, but we didn't realize how deep it ran in our hearts. Lord, we need you. We can't white-knuckle this and willpower ourselves to treasuring you above all. We need to catch a vision of you that compels us to love you above all else. Lord, we thank you for doing that in your word this morning. We pray that we'd be a people, individually and as a congregation, who treasure you above all else, even our ethnicities. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond together singing praises to our God who is truly above all.